This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The weather is changing quickly. The Front Range and Eastern Plains braced for whiteout conditions. You can follow news of this storm at CPR.org and through our social channels, including at CPR News on Twitter. We're going to begin the show today, though, with a prediction that's not about weather. According to our first guest, it's a matter of when, not if, a measles outbreak hits Colorado. Dr. Sean O'Leary specializes in infectious diseases at Children's Hospital Colorado. We want to understand what's behind his concern, especially in light of outbreaks in other parts of the U.S. And, Doctor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So our intention is not to be alarmist, but what would a measles outbreak look like? Help us understand the disease. Well, so measles is a potentially devastating disease. Measles killed uh, two-thirds of the population of Cuba when it was introduced there in the 16th century. It killed a quarter of Hawaii when it first was introduced there in the 19th century. Just this year, there's an outbreak going on in Madagascar where 900 children have died. Measles is a potentially deadly disease. So far, we're seeing these outbreaks in pockets across the U.S. And and the reason I've said in the past that for Colorado, it's not a matter of if we get a measles outbreak, it's a matter of when, is we have pockets in Colorado that are very prone to having a measles outbreak. So measles is an extraordinarily contagious disease. You could be across a gymnasium. And if you're susceptible to measles and someone coughs, you could get measles. Very, very contagious disease. Because of that, you have to maintain really high immunity within a population to protect the population, to to protect measles from spreading within that population. That herd immunity that we talk about. Right. Some people call herd immunity. I've kind of uh, moved away from that term because, you know, uh, but but community protection or community immunity. What what exactly is measles? Help us understand it. So measles is a virus. Um, It's unique to humans. Um, Humans are the only reservoir. And because of that, uh, it is a potentially eradicatable disease. We, we, it, is, it is on the list of diseases that the World Health Organization is looking to eradicate from the face of the earth. Um, it, cause, it generally causes uh, fever, uh, high fever, um, runny nose, red eyes, conjunctivitis, uh, or no, otherwise known as pink eye, um, cough. And then most children will get a, most people who get it will get a rash. Um, those aren't the reasons we vaccinate for measles, though. We, we vaccinate against measles to prevent the complications. And the measles is one virus that has a very high rate of complication rel- relative to other diseases. So it leads to other problems. Yeah. Like what? What's so deadly about it? Maybe help us understand. So the, the two main things that people die of when they get, measle, when they get measles are either pneumonia or encephalitis, which, which is an infection of the brain. Now, you focused in large part on young people. Yeah. Uh, tell us why that is. Well, so... In general, young people are um, young people are who the disease most often happens in, uh, but it can also be devastating for adults as well. Now, older assuming adults, they're unvaccinated, yeah, older adults born before 1957 generally had measles when they were young and survived, um, and so they are generally considered protected. Anyone who's had two doses of vaccine is protected. It's these pockets of unvaccinated children that we worry about. I want to talk about those pockets in just a moment. But if if someone here is, oh, there's an older generation that did just fine unvaccinated. Well, remember that those are the people that lived. 
So, the, <laughs> so you know, there is an older generation. They all had measles, but measles had even in developed countries like the U.S. When measles was common, one to two people out of every thousand people that were infected died. So that's a very high rate of death. Okay, uh, to this idea of pockets, you're referring to pockets of unvaccinated, correct people, children for the most part. Uh, yeah, mostly children. And you think that's why a measles outbreak is so likely in Colorado? Well, right. So what we know is that to to protect a population from measles, you have to maintain vaccination rates of around 95%. 95%. Yeah. And Colorado overall, the kindergarten, the up-to-date vaccination rate for MMR vaccine, which is the, which contains measles, the measles uh, vaccine. Uh, was about 89% for Colorado, so lower than that. Now, the problem, though, is that that's the whole state. When you look at individual pockets, there are places, and particularly some schools, that have much lower rates. And so if a person were to come in from, say, a trip internationally and they picked up measles and they went into that school, measles would spread. Uh, Do you want to point to what those pockets are in this state? Oh, well, they're they're kind of they're in various places. I think, uh, for example, Boulder gets a lot of flack. uh, But, you know, honestly, there are there are pockets of high immunization rates in Boulder as well. But there there are pockets in Denver. There are pockets in Colorado Springs. Um, Overall, again, the the vaccination, most parents are vaccinating and our overall rate is is actually, you know, uh, not terrible, but it's those but it's pockets. Those pockets that, that's why that you are refer the to that. That, that yeah. localized idea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so highly contagious. And what what if parents who say, "Yes, I'll just keep my kid home," though, if they start to get sick? Well, so the problem with that is that you're often contagious before you know you're you're ill oh. for one thing and certainly before you're very much contagious before you get the rash that identifies someone as potentially having measles and so by the time someone is declared or considered as possibly having measles they've already exposed many other people you're listening to Colorado Matters I'm Ryan Warner and we're speaking with Dr. Sean O'Leary he specializes in infectious diseases at Children's Hospital Colorado and he says that it's a matter of when, not if, a measles outbreak hits Colorado. He ties that to the state's uh, overall vaccination rate and more specifically vaccination rates in certain pockets in Colorado. So state law requires vaccinations for school kids, but parents can opt out. What are the reasons a child can be exempted? Yeah, that's a great question. So all 50 states in the U.S., including Colorado, have uh, medical exemptions to vaccination. Now, those are rare. So those are medical conditions that for, for which a child couldn't be vaccinated or um, a history of a, of a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine. Those are very, very rare. Um, the other types of exemptions are religious exemptions and uh, what people call personal belief or philosophical exemptions. And uh, 47 states allow religious exemptions and 17 states allow these personal belief exemptions. Colorado allows uh, both religious and personal belief. What we know is that the, the states that allow all of these exemptions have lower vaccination rates and, and higher rates of vaccine-preventable diseases. We also know that the easier it is to get an exemption – 
the the higher the exemption rates and the lower the vaccination rates. What have you heard about what falls under personal belief? Uh, what do you mean by that? As an exemption, what do people cite oh, about their beliefs? Well, so typically all of the personal belief exemptions are based on misinformation. So these are parents who have, through whatever means, through be it the internet or a relative or a neighbor, someone has planted a seed of fear in their head that vaccines are somehow riskier than the diseases we're trying to prevent. Let me say that scientists have routinely debunked the link between vaccines and conditions like autism, yet those concerns persist. Right. What exactly. else do you hear? Exactly. So once a myth is in someone's mind, um, it's very difficult to get that out of their mind. And so that's what we see in this this whole you know, vaccine thing that you mentioned, the the vaccination and autism thing, that was based on a fraudulent study from over 20 years ago that has been debunked many, many times and been shown it's me. uh, Vaccines do not cause autism. And yet that myth still persists. There are instances, as you mentioned, where vaccinations can cause harm to people. uh, But those, as you say, are very rare instances. what do we know about – so MMR is the vaccine that contains the measles uh, vaccination. Uh, what do we know about whether that is a particular vaccination that parents opt out of? Like uh, uh, I know that some parents are selective about which ones they opt out of. Right. It's not yeah. across the board. Th- there's all – you know, so I think it's important to understand kind of where we are. The vast majority of parents do vaccinate their children, most of them on the recommended childhood schedule. And so this, this sort of anti-vaxxer crowd gets a lot more um, – coverage in the press and and on the internet than perhaps their portion of the population represents. Only about 1% of parents refuse all vaccines for their children. Um, But I think that the misinformation that's been spread has been spread into the minds of a lot of parents who just have questions about vaccines and they decide, well, maybe it would be best if I spread these vaccines out mm-hmm. or if I, you know, delay this vaccine or I just ref- I'll get all the vaccines except for one of them. And so that's what we see a lot of in pediatrics. And what do you tell them when you meet parents who hold that view? Well, it depends. I mean, it's it's very contextual. So, you know, if, if it's a family that I know very well and I've been, you know, I've taken care of all of their older children and they come in with a concern that, you know, is, is unfounded and based on misinformation, I can just go, I can be very direct and say, you know what, that's a bunch of hooey because we've established a very trusting relationship. On the other hand, if I'm meeting a parent for the first time, it can be a more difficult conversation. Um, and, I imagine who we can feel dismissive to someone like right, that. exactly, and you really want to avoid that. I mean, we have to we all we have to remember that all of these parents are doing what they think is best for their children. In Colorado, state lawmakers are apparently drafting a bill that would make it tougher for parents to opt out. How might Colorado's laws change to make the state less susceptible to an outbreak? Do you think? Well, that's that's a, a very good question. Um, there's a lot of activity going around um, in terms of potentially either eliminating exemptions, and, and I'm talking about around the country, um, eliminating the option of, of non-medical exemptions, 
Um, now, just to be clear, no one's talking about putting uh, eliminating medical exemptions. Those will always exist. Um, for Colorado, I think that remains to be seen. Uh, there's, I think there's work, there's a lot of work going on there right now to determine what is going to be best for Colorado. But examples of things that happen in other states are some kind of a educational component to to obtaining an exemption, uh, going into your local public health department to obtain an exemption, um, getting a, a notarized statement that stating why you think your child should be exempted from vaccines. So those are some of the examples that other states have used. Uh, can you imagine the difficulty of telling, say, I don't know, a, a Christian scientist that they have to have their kids vaccinated? Well, so I think the other the other important thing to consider is that no one is talking about mandatory vaccination. This is really about safe schools. So no one is compelling anyone to get a vaccine. But if you want to send your child to school, they need to be vaccinated. Because when you send your child to school, you're not just you're not considering only your child. You're considering all the children around them. And remember, in our schools, we have kids that are going through treatment for cancer. We have kids that have, have got, gone through transplants. We have kids who, in whom these diseases are far more deadly. They rely on the rest of the students at the school to protect them from those diseases. Because of their weakened immune systems. Correct. Just briefly, it's been reported that Governor Polis might veto a bill that would make it tougher for parents to opt out. Do you think the state is sending a mixed message about the importance or the need to vaccinate in the interest of overall public health and those vulnerable kids you talk about? Yeah, I've seen a little bit about that in the media. That's not my understanding. Um, I you know, I, I think he has come out and said things along the lines of, uh, you know, I don't want to completely eliminate non-medical exemptions, but I, I, I don't think he has come out and said, I don't, you know, I, he, I think he's very committed to improving public health in Colorado. Dr. Sean O'Leary is an infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado. And he's bracing for a potential outbreak of a disease like measles related to Colorado's low vaccination rate. It seems our listeners have an insatiable curiosity about recycling. They send us questions all the time through Colorado Wonders about what happens to the stuff they throw away. And it's why recently we went to a plant in North Denver that takes in recyclables from all over the state. So this is the robot. His name is Clark. And he sorts milk and juice cartons and coffee cups. Well, after that story, your questions kept coming. And today we're going to answer those with producer Alexandra McMahon. Hi, Alexandra. Hey, Ryan. Let's start with a lightning round of follow-up questions. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Mark Miramonte of Evergreen asks, can you recycle juice cartons? Yes. Most major recyclers will take those wax-lined milk and juice cartons. Okay. Here's one we addressed in the story but just kept coming. Uh, what is Denver's throwaway rate? In other words, how much stuff that we throw in the recycling actually gets rejected? So all of Denver's recycling goes to Alpine, which we visited, and they say that out of all the material that comes into their facility, 10% gets rejected from their system. 90% gets recycled, okay? Yes. And most of that is made up of stuff that really shouldn't even be a question, like scrap metal, bumpers, pots and pans. We fill a big 30-yard construction dumpster every day full of metals that should not be in the single stream. 
Ah, which leads to another question. This came from Reddit. Don't the recyclers just make bank selling that metal? Well, I went back to Alpine's vice president of recycling, Brent Hildebrand, for an answer to this one. We do send that to a metal recycler. The problem with that metal is that it's the type of metal that will jam up and damage our system. So while we do get make sure it gets recycled, uh, it's not great for these systems and it causes a lot of problems. Now, I don't know what the going rate is right now for a car bumper, but yes, Alpine does get paid for dropping off that metal. All right, moving along, what about fluorescent light bulbs with mercury vapor inside? Someone else on Reddit had a specific question about where to recycle those. And I asked Hildebrand about this, and he said Alpine definitely doesn't accept them. They're considered hazardous material. But he said your best bet is to just Google it, which I did, and found out Home Depot will actually take the bulbs for free, even if you don't buy them there. Okay, um, some bigger picture questions now. We heard uh, from listeners like this perception that Coloradans are pretty bad at recycling overall. Is that true? Yeah, and there have been a lot of news stories about this, so the answer won't be very surprising. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, we're below average when it comes to recycling compared to the rest of the country. But it's hard to measure. Wolf Cray is the recycling guy at that agency, and he told me that there's no set industry standard to measure recycling rates. Why would we be below the national average, though? Well, when the state started looking into this, they first thought it was an issue of access. And there definitely are parts of the state that have limited access to recycling services. And if you live in a big building, you're kind of at the mercy of the management. But Cray says that's not really the biggest problem. We actually found out that 96 percent of the population that resides within a city or county has the ability to use curbside recycling. I guess the question is there if we have these low numbers for how much is getting recycled versus disposed of, how much is based upon participation? If access is there, how many people are are participating? And and that kind of goes to the next question is, how convenient is recycling? Uh, Why would people not be participating? It sounds a little bit like he's blaming us, the consumers, or at least the system we use for Colorado's poor performance. Yeah, the state does suspect that this problem stems from not enough people recycling. And I asked Cray, could that be because there aren't enough incentives in Colorado for people to recycle, like a bottle deposit program where you get paid to recycle? Oh, yeah. Why doesn't Colorado have that? Um, Yeah, that's one of those, you know, political issues that would have to be approved through the legislature. The last bottle bill that went in place was Hawaii, I think, in like 2003 or so. And then prior to that, there hasn't been a bottle bill since the 80s, just because it is a challenge to get that in place and add all the extra collection infrastructure. There's another reason Colorado lags behind. There's just so much open space here to landfill. So recycling just isn't prioritized the way it is on the crowded coasts. But a caveat, this whole Colorado being bad at recycling thing could be deceiving. Cray was telling me about the evolving ton, which has to do with the way things are made and packaged nowadays. Manufacturers are are trying to minimize the amount of raw materials that they use in packaging, which is great. On the recycling side, for example, 10 years ago, it took like 48,000 plastic bottles to make one ton of uh, a recycling bale. And now it takes 92,000 plastic bottles. So that's good. I mean, that that's great that products are lighter and they're using less resources to make them. 
But on the recycling side, if we're measuring by weight, it sometimes seems to look like we're recycling less, where in fact we're actually not recycling less. It just products weigh less, which is a good thing. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, Exandra, we reported in our earlier story that recyclables get shipped to other countries. And I, I guess I wanted to delve into that a little deeper, specifically the question of how energy intensive it is to put our trash on a slow boat to China. I mean, wouldn't it save energy to landfill it close to home? Well, let's use an example. Take an aluminum can. There will be more energy used to mine for that aluminum and make a new can versus sending a used one overseas to be remade. Cray says if we can take out that first step, the mining, there will be massive emission savings, even if you factor in transport. What's really cool is there have actually been studies of how far recyclables can travel before it's not worth it. Essentially, the break-even point of how far is it too far to ship a material where recycling is no longer worthwhile. The least energy-demanding material that's out there is glass. And even that, you could ship a ton of glass 1,300 miles by truck before you hit that break-even point where it's not worth recycling, which is pretty amazing. If you look at a really energy-intensive product like aluminum, you can go 121,000 miles before you hit that break-even point where it's not worth recycling. So for aluminum, it would be worth it up to almost five times around the world. Uh For glass, that's the distance between Denver and Cleveland. So the harder it is to mine for new material, the farther you can ship it and still have it be worth it. Uh, But wouldn't it be ideal to just keep everything local, like turn trash into new things right here in Colorado? Yes, but that doesn't get started overnight. In the past few years, the states put a lot of focus on this. They started a grant program to attract companies that'll take our waste and make it into something new. But they want to lure these companies here, okay? Yep. And so far, one firm has gotten a grant and opened up shop in Colorado. What do they do? The company's called Rewall. They take milk and juice cartons and turn them into building materials. And Wolf Cray told me about his agency's Next Cycle program, which helps companies already here incorporate recyclables into their manufacturing. Exandra, thanks for being with us. No problem. CPR's Exandra McMahon answering more of your recycling questions, and I just have a feeling they'll keep coming. That makes us happy. So tell us what you're curious about through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Schools and government offices may be closed today and flights may be canceled, but CPR News is operating at full strength. Get the latest on the storm at CPR.org, and we're posting updates and photos on Twitter, our new Twitter handle, at CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. What if every official trace of a court case vanished? No record of a lawsuit being filed, a criminal arrested, a verdict, even if someone went to prison. Turns out that's happened thousands of times in Colorado in just the last five years, according to a Denver Post investigation. But how do you cover something that seems to have vanished? For Sunshine Week, reporter David Magoya is going to talk about his series Shrouded Justice as a result of his reporting, the state Supreme Court has ordered changes. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. The, you? the legalese here is that these records were suppressed. Give me an example of a case you uncovered whose records had been kept secret. We highlighted a man whose boy was the uh, murder victim. And 
It never occurred to the father that we interviewed that no one showed up for the trial. There wasn't anyone there uh, except for the, uh, the defendant's family and then, of course, the victim's family. Once he found out, it's because the case was suppressed. He felt as if his son was killed all over again, that it should not be right that these people who were convicted for the crimes were able to do so without anyone knowing what they did. Let's set the broader stakes here. Why does it matter to the general public if the kind of information we're talking about in these suppressed cases stays secret? The American public has a right uh, built into the Constitution for an open and accessible justice system. So essentially then, without that, you have a secret police judicial system. You could be arrested, charged, convicted, sent to prison, and no one would ever know who, why, how, or whether the process was even fair. And what we found were a number of cases, 66 precise, that we found where an individual was, as I just described, charged, tried, convicted, and sent to prison. Uh, And those records were suppressed from the moment the charges were filed. That meant no reporter at any level, except for the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney would have access to the case file. And again, until we started reporting, for the last 20 years, the Colorado system was set up where you couldn't even find a trace of the existence of that case. So we had someone that went to prison. I think the example there was about 196 years. And there's no way that now there is. But until that point, there Mm. was no way to even find out how it was he got there. And then many of these cases are also civil. Yeah, there were a number of civil cases where in the state of Colorado, a physician who sued for malpractice is required by state law to report any settlement or verdict uh, in that case to the regulation body. Now, that seems important for the patients. Yes, but Uh it's not true for lawyers. Okay. And what we found were a number, dozens of cases where attorneys who were successfully sued for malpractice were suppressing those cases. So anyone looking to do due diligence on the attorney they were looking to hire would not see at all that he was ever sued for malpractice, let alone lose that case. Now, what do officials in the justice system say is the reason that these cases get sealed, if you will? Is that the word for it, sealed? No, sealed is a whole different process. Under state law, a sealed case does not exist because there are laws in place that allow it to be so. For instance, you are tried and you're acquitted. You immediately get to move for the seal of that record and no trace of that case will ever exist, which as it should be, it doesn't go against you. Your reputation is That's important exactly right. in that case. Um, but why suppression? Case, yeah. Well, a suppressed case, the prosecutors were claiming early on that their investigations were not yet complete. Uh, There could be other individuals out there that may benefit from learning of these charges and abscond, any number of other reasons, protect witnesses. And in fact, the system is set up to allow for the sealing of specific records, such as an arrest affidavit, a witness list, but not the suppression of the entire case. What was then happening is once the case got into the system, nobody ever bothered to ask for it to be unsuppressed. And they remained that way for years. Along comes your series, Shrouded Justice, that begins to change that. We are talking to you during Sunshine Week. How did you begin to find out about cases that no one was supposed to know about? (laughs) It's kind of interesting. You, you, You don't know what you don't know. And in this case, we had been hearing reporters in town, I'm sure even those here at Colorado Public Radio, occasionally bump into a criminal case that they ask for access to a record and they are told that case is suppressed. 
taken individually, it doesn't really register. But I had heard a number of different times in a single week of this suppression issue. And it just sort of occurred to me that it's been happening an awful lot, that you don't have access to something that should be, by its very definition, public. So the attempt at that point was to merely figure out the scope, the range of the number of these cases that existed out there. I had no idea. And trying to figure out what you don't know from people that are not allowed to tell you huh. uh, made it a little more uh, interesting and of a challenge. Where is the place you turned then? What we tried to do and successfully was to figure out the number of cases that had the designation in the court record of SPR, which mm. stood for suppressed. So you could get at the number. We could get at a number. And I wasn't really sure how much of a number it was going to be. And when those first records showed up from the state court administrator, it numbered into the thousands. And that, that just floored us. I mean, without the notice and the paperwork, you found yourself kind of wandering courthouses <laughs> hoping to stumble upon something that had been suppressed. Yes. Because presumably, if you went right into the proceedings... What? They would allow you in? Yeah, proceedings were not closed. What you couldn't find out was when a proceeding was going to happen. You had no idea. Outside of each courtroom in Colorado, there's what's called a docket sheet. It's the schedule for the day. If there was a suppressed case that was to be heard in front of that judge, there would be a time assigned, but anything else than that was a blank line. So I wandered the courthouse in Arapahoe County, looking at each of these docket sheets, and found one that there was a blank line. And I said, wow, let's go to this, which I did. And I found someone who was pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, a sentence that would get him 60 years in prison. And the only way for me to have learned his name was to be sitting there when the judge actually said it. You either had to have really good timing or essentially be psychic. <laughs> no, I had a little of both that day. <laughs> it was fascinating. You found that the suppression was really unevenly applied. So under the district attorney based in Arapahoe County, George Brockler, there were like a ton of them. Then you call up the Denver DA at the time, Mitch Morrissey. He's like never even heard of this. That's right. Yeah, it was initially my impression that everywhere in the state, all the prosecutors did roughly the same thing. Mitch Morrissey, when we reached him, was completely aghast at the idea because he'd never heard of it. He had to ask me a number of times, had to uh, research it himself, came back to say we'd never used it. So it became a very unique little tool among some of the prosecutors in the state, but certainly not all of them. To what extent did the state's own transparency laws play a role in what you were able to achieve here? Our case was very unique in that, by law, they couldn't tell me some of the information. So I had to frame our questions in such a manner as to get to an answer. And we started with a very large umbrella, figure how many of these cases existed. Then we started whittling them down from there. Uh, there were probably hmm, 18 to 20 Open Records Act requests in this whole uh, series of stories. What has changed the prosecutor in the 18th Judicial District, George Brockler, very quickly uh, realized that his jurisdiction had the largest number of these cases, and he swiftly moved to start unsuppressing them, realizing that there were other counties that had this issue as well. The state court administrator and the chief justice, Justice Coates for the state of Colorado, decided to convene a committee to take a look at this issue 
suppressed records don't have any rule on how they should be handled. Judges can suppress these willy-nilly. So what's coming is a new judicial directive from the state Supreme Court that lays out quite emphatically when you're allowed to suppress, how long they can last, when you must review them, and when they must be opened. That is David Magoya, investigative reporter at the Denver Post. His series, Shrouded Justice, explores cases that are hidden from the public. The state Supreme Court recently ordered a committee to consider new rules to limit the suppression of cases. Magoya's series was a finalist for the Scripps Howard Award for Distinguished Service to the First Amendment. And we spoke as part of Sunshine Week. Tomorrow, how a reporter in Grand Junction got onto the story of an illegal body parts operation. Your feedback now in loud and clear. Lab-grown meat was the focus of a segment last week on our show. A pet food company in Boulder aims to use chicken fermented in a lab in its products. They point to efficiencies when you don't have to raise an animal from birth. Early studies, however, find growing meat in a lab could use a lot of energy. Here's how the CEO of Brand Pet Foods, Rich Kellerman, responded. The one thing to note, since all of the companies in the space are relatively early in the process, there's only room to improve efficiencies. While conventional agriculture has pretty much tapped out like how efficient they can get from a land, water, and energy use standpoint. Now, his characterization of conventional farming rubbed listener Debbie Wren the wrong way. So I asked her to record a few thoughts on her phone. Agriculture is one of the most exciting industries to be in when it comes to advances to gain efficiencies. And I think even in 10 years, farmers will look back at practices we are using today and laugh because that's how fast the industry is changing. Wren describes herself as a farmer's daughter living in the city, Estes Park to be precise. My family raises Angus cattle and grows corn and soybeans in Illinois. We have gained efficiencies through GPS technology to precision plant and adopting no-till practices after harvest and therefore using less fuel. We use fewer pesticides by utilizing genetically engineered seed. There's Fitbits for cows, sheep ear tags for quick scanning and storing data, barn cameras where the farmer can closely monitor livestock from their smartphone, sensors to know exactly how much rain a field received, and now autonomous tractors are being tested. For some reason, Debbie, that made me think of my late grandfather who farmed in Missouri. I wonder what he'd think of a self-driving tractor. Keep your feedback coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College. How it's gotten so partisan and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An angry man, an armored bulldozer, and an unsuspecting Colorado town. Fifteen years ago, Marvin Hemeyer took out his frustrations using a bulldozer he fortified with steel, concrete, and guns. He went on a rampage through Granby, targeting people he thought were out to get him. 
This is from a TV report at the time as a news helicopter surveys the scene. This man owned a business next to the concrete company that he had a long-standing beef with the concrete company in Granby, a very long-standing, decades old, it was described to us, and then he went after the concrete company first. He then made his way down Main Street of Granby and actually was taking out buildings as he passed, took out the t- much of the town hall, took out the library, may have gone through the Liberty Bank, and actually looks like he might have punched in one side of a new Liberty Bank in Granby and came out the other. One of the people on Heemeyer's hit list was Patrick Brower. He's former editor and publisher of Granby's Sky High News. He also wrote the book Kill Dozer. It's the subject of a new documentary screening at South by Southwest tomorrow. I spoke with Brower last May. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Great to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you. You, you start your book with Heemeyer's homemade tank coming right for you and for the newspaper. Describe that moment for us. Well, Ryan, this was a big story for us, a tank going down the street, so we decided to cover it. And uh, when we saw it coming down the street in our direction, we went inside the building to wait for it to pass. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't pass. When he got in front of our building, he took a sharp right turn and slammed right into the front wall. I was in there with another editor uh, from Winter Park, and the building literally started to collapse around us, and we turned tail and ran out of there as fast as we could. Were you okay? Yes, we were okay. But I like to tell people if I tripped, I wouldn't be here to tell that story because he completely demolished our building. My goodness. What was going through your mind at that point? Or well, maybe it was maybe nothing, right? It's just fight or flight? Well, really, my first thought was, what have we written to cause somebody to get this upset? Because at that time, we didn't really know for sure who it was driving this bulldozer tank. When we found out that it was Marv Hemeyer for sure, which was only about 15 minutes later, It started to make a little bit of sense, but not totally. Why did it make a little bit of sense? Well, Marv and I had been on opposite sides of a variety of issues over the years, starting with the the attempt to bring legalized gambling to Grand Lake. But that was all the way back in 1992. The newspaper was opposed. Marv was for it. He even launched a newspaper against ours to present his pro-gambling point of view. He accused us of being, you know, yellow journalists, uh, championing a bad cause, etc. That's where it started. You have a photo on the front of your book of the the killdozer, as it became known. Will you describe it for us? Sure. Well, what it is is it it's uh, you can see in the background the Sky High News building collapsed, uh, completely collapsed, and in that area is where my office was located. Strangely enough, Marv had been in my office many times, giving me letters to the editor. Little did I know he was scoping out our building. <laughs> And in front, you'll see the actual killdozer itself, which is a Komatsu D-355A bulldozer, upon which Marv built a uh, steel-enshrouded cab. It's a layer of steel, then concrete, then another layer of steel, and it completely encloses the cab. There are firing ports. Um, you there can't... are firing points. Now, you would stick a gun out of those holes. Yes, uh, embrasures where he stuck the barrel of rifles out and uh, was able to fire out of those Holes. He had a list of targets. So as as special as you were in this, there were many others, apparently, that he had a beef with. Yeah, Marv uh, really had a beef with uh, his neighbors, the Dochefs, who uh, owned the concrete plant. And then he just went down the list of town board members who had deliberated on the hearings relating to the approval of that batch plant. And then he had other people who apparently at some time along his tenure in town had somehow made him angry. What was the scale of damage that he was able to exact? 
Well, by my figuring, it was uh, roughly around $10 million total damage. He either destroyed or very badly damaged 13 buildings in total. It was a lot of damage. He totaled our building, completely totaled the newspaper building. He totaled your building. Uh, that must have been an interesting call to the insurance company. <laughs> you know, Ryan, we were lucky. We had good insurance, but many other people did not, and it cost them a lot of money. It cost us a lot of money, too, even after the insurance. What about the human toll? The human toll is mainly what I call sort of psychological. The people in Granby didn't really understand why Marv did this because— Let me just be clear. No one was killed. Yes. And no one was seriously injured. No one was killed or seriously injured except for Marv. He killed himself at the end of the rampage. I mean, that's an amazing idea that with that much destruction— No one lost their lives. Well, it's kind of a miracle. He did shoot at people. He shot at Cody Dochev. He shot at three police officers. He actually tried to blow up the town shooting at propane tanks in eastern Granby and then shooting at a nearby electrical transformer in an attempt to ignite the gas escaping from the tanks. Luckily, he did not hit any of the tanks. He did leave behind quite a bit of evidence, writings, even recording. So here's Hemeyer from tapes he left behind. God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45, 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. That is Marv Meyer, who is behind the Killdozer, a rampage that happened in June 2004 in Granby, Colorado. We're speaking with the author of a book about the Killdozer, Patrick Brower, who is also on Meyer's hit list. What else did he leave behind that gave you some sense of what was going on in his head? Well, he also left behind a series of writings that he left in the shed where he built the uh, Killdozer. And it starts out with things like, if only Cody had bought my property for $66,000, I wouldn't have to be so unreasonable. And it just went down the list. He highlighted his beefs uh, with the town council, with uh, the local district judge who did not uh, rule in favor of his lawsuit against the town. He talks about me in his writings. It's a very sort of candid revelation of his twisted motives behind this uh, action. Had he had a criminal record before? No criminal record. There were a few civil actions, but nothing major. Do you think it was mental illness in some regard? I think that an edge of narcissism might have been involved, but uh, my gut feeling is that Marv decided he was going to do this out of feeling of pride, anger, and disgust. As far back as 2001, once he decided he was going to do it, he had a revelation in a hot tub where God told him to do it. And from that point on, he decided he was going to do it no matter what happened. He had a revelation in a hot tub? Yes. uh, He uh, explains it in his tapes very clearly where God said he wanted Marv to do this. And uh, he was sitting in a hot tub shortly after it became clear to him that he was not going to win his case against the batch plant and probably not win his lawsuit. During the attack, you saw a young man pumping his fist in the air, cheering the tank on. And that cheering never really stopped. I mean, tell us more about the support for Hemeyer. Well, it started almost immediately. Not only did I see that guy kind of walking down the street celebrating the violence of it all, uh, at that moment there was a radio bro- broadcast going on where a woman was defending Hemeyer as a nice guy, a teddy bear of a guy who would only do this and attack people's property, not try to hurt people. It went crazy from there. 
immediately there was a, a blog uh, posted by a guy in Arizona called No BS News, where he basically says that uh, Marv was a victim of corrupt town government and that uh, uh, the police uh, actually killed him, that he didn't kill himself, that uh, the whole town was corrupt, that Marv was justified, that he wasn't trying to hurt people, that he was only just trying to damage property. This just took off. Here are your words from the book. Hemeyer morphed into a hero who typified the image of the lone American patriot standing up to the intrusions of government and the media with guns god and armed and armored bulldozer and a list of grievances. Uh, We found YouTube videos with titles like Marvin Hemeyer's Valiant Last Stand, and uh, he celebrated in this rather hard-to-listen-to punk song. little hard to make out the lyrics, but sometimes you just want to knock it all down, plow your whole town into the ground. Is there something to learn in this political moment from what happened in Granby? Because it it feels like a moment in which it's very in vogue to talk about um, just the overreach of government or the, you know, government in our lives or you know, the swamp. Yes. I mean, Ryan, I really think that what's going on here is that with Hemeyer, people have a predisposition to have a gripe with government, whether it's over a speeding ticket, whether it's over a petty battle over something with the town hall. And and maybe this is a love of the little guy. I mean, that goes back to David and Goliath. It does come back to that typical trope. But then you get people creating these false narratives to justify the violent actions. And that's what's really disturbing about this. I sat through all the hearings. I was there. I knew Marv. Let me tell you, the town wasn't corrupt. The town wasn't out to get them. They've been over backwards to try to work with him, and this is what they got. So the spin is what's really dangerous, you think? Exactly. It's the way people perceive the incident and how they glorify him into a hero. That's the issue. Part of what you want to achieve with this book, Killdozer, is to set the record straight, uh, get rid of some of the myth. Yeah, it, it is an attempt. Uh, I'll tell you, I just saw a posting uh, based on a piece in a a thing called Out There Colorado. The first eight responses were, don't believe this fiction. It's not true. Uh, Marv was picked on by the government and he was right to fight back. And it just continues on that vein. And it's all over. He killed himself, as you told us. Yes, he did. What do you make of, of that ending of his demise? Well, this is what I think. Everybody says that Marv uh, deliberately did not try to kill people, that he was just out to destroy property. The truth is, is that if you shoot at people and you knock down buildings, you're probably going to kill somebody. But he had no way of knowing whether he did or not. I think Marv might have thought, heck, I don't know whether I killed anybody or not, but if I did, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. Perhaps that's why he killed himself. Mm. Police had shot at him, right? To, to What was the law enforcement response? And, and was it inadequate? Or Well, I mean, yeah. It, I, it, I don't know if you ever prepare for the you know, a <laughs> fortified bulldozer coming down. Well, let me tell you this. The firearms available to most police were uh, uh, absolutely ineffective against the dozer. I don't think any rounds got in there. So their response in that regard was ineffective. Hindsight says, oh, if we just had a can of spray paint, we could have painted over the cameras he had mounted on the outside. Uh, maybe we could have injected oxygen into the te- the engine to, to over-rev it. So that stage of the response was ineffective, although they did do something really good. They evacuated the town and got people out, and that saved lives. How long did the rampage last? Roughly two and a half hours. My goodness, that must have felt like an eternity. It was, and it's sort of one of the more surreal things about it is you could just stand there and look at the thing 
trundling past you, and there wasn't much you could be done. I mean, I saw uh, sheriff's deputies and troopers shooting at this thing, all to no effect. Do you think this is terrorism? I think it's a form of terrorism. People were reluctant to use that term early on because at that time there were riders and insurance policies that excluded terrorism. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing this story with us. Do you, do you, do you have nightmares about this? Uh, I just feel uneasy about the way people find it so easy to believe false narratives to justify their biases. That is Patrick Brower, former editor and publisher of Granby Sky High News. We spoke in May about his book, Killdozer. It's the story of Marvin Hemeyer and his rampage through Granby 15 years ago in June 2004. It's now the subject of a documentary screening tomorrow at South by Southwest. CPR News is following the bomb cyclone, which we can officially call this winter storm. It will lead to whiteout conditions along the Front Range and eastern plains of Colorado. Keep up to date with our radio newscasts online at CPR.org. And there's great information and visuals on Twitter at CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.